Well, hey, good morning. Welcome to La Jolla Community Church. Glad to have you here this morning. Um, it is time to magnify the name of the Lord and worship. So if you are able, would you stand to your feet and let's sing. As the deer panteth for the water, so my soul longeth after thee. You alone are my heart's desire, and I long to worship thee. strength my shield to you alone may my spirit yield you alone are my heart desire and I long to worship And all my days 
I've been held in your hand From the moment that I wake up Until I lay my head Oh, I will sing Of the goodness of God Cause all my life you have been faithful All my life you have been so, so good, yeah With every breath that I am able Oh, I will sing of the goodness of God I love your voice You have led me through the fire in darkest nights you are close like no other oh yeah I know you as a father I know you as a friend and I have lived in the goodness of God oh cause all my life you have been faithful So, so good, yeah With every breath that I am able Oh, I will sing of the goodness of God Your goodness is running after It's running after me Goodness of God. 
everybody. Let's go ahead and bow our, our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you today and for all that is bright and beautiful, for everything that gives us hope, the glory of a newly blossoming flower bud, the comforting shade of a tree, a magnificent sunrise or star-filled night, sky that fills us with awe, the steadfast of a friend, or the blessed memory of a loved one now at home at peace with you. We thank you for communities that work and play together, that strive to be welcoming, loving, and just in your name. Communities like this one here at LJCC that seek to follow you. Thank you, Father. Lord, we pray for all who are challenged with health issues, that you would strengthen them in body and spirit and in mind. We pray for all who are grieving, whether the, lo the loss of a loved one, the loss of a pet at home, the loss of employment or reputation, comfort them toward new life. We pray for all who are traumatized by violence, that which has already occurred or that which threatens to break out, that you would bring them peace, safety, and heal their hearts. We pray that those who have been victims of hate or racism would also know your healing and justice. Heal our nation as well. Dear Lord, our political polarization and social divisions have diminished our sense of oneness with others and narrowed the search for common ground. Bring healing to our nation's brokenness. Just as Jesus blessed his disciples, we know that he blesses us. As we walk through our daily lives, we often get caught up with other things, distracted by events, good or bad, busy with work, excited for things to come, perhaps a family get together or even a vacation. And through it all, Lord, we know that you're right next to us. We ask that you help us remember that and that we remember to bless those we encounter throughout our each and every happening with your spirit. Shine through us so that throughout our worldly endeavors, your love, grace, and spirit lusters fiercely. You have created all the wonders of the world, from the heights of Mount Everest to Challenger Deep in the Marianas Trench, from the waves we surf at Scripps to the trails we hike at San Jacinto. The beauty of this world is because of you. Help us to enjoy the spectacular things you have brought to us while always focusing on you. Make us strong vessels to carry out the treasure that is in your each and every, or that is in each hour each and every day. As it is written in Romans, we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always consigned to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our mortal body. Lord, let us bless others with your spirit as we come together 
saying the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever, amen. Welcome to La Jolla Community Church. If this is your first time joining us for our worship service, we're so glad that you're here. On your way in, you should have received a bulletin. On there, you will find our Connect card. If you are looking to get connected with the church, we encourage you to fill out that Connect card so we can get to know you. If you have new contact information, please fill out the Connect card so we can keep you updated. On the other side, you will find our prayer card. If you have anyone in your life who is in need of prayer, please fill out the prayer card or visit our website at ljcc.org prayer. On your way out, you can drop these cards off in the foyer or the box mounted on the wall. We know life gets difficult and there are times we lose trust in God. We lose our focus and we get distracted with everything else going on in our lives. So we want to invite you and your family to join us every Wednesday at 6.30 p.m. for our prayer night. Come meet with us as we take time in our busy lives to reconnect with God and put our trust and hope in Him again. We hope you enjoy the rest of our worship service. So I have a personal question to ask you. How disciplined are you? On a scale of, say, 1 to 10, uh, how disciplined are you? Uh, maybe you want to start with the thing you do the best. How disciplined are you at that? And then maybe expand your thinking in terms of, are there other parts of my life where I'm not really disciplined and it's holding me back or uh, somehow making the rest of my life not work very well? Uh, big question. First of all, let me back up. Jeff, thank you for that prayer. Uh, did they teach you that at the Naval Academy, or was that from being on a ship on fire or something? I mean, that, wow, you brought us into God's presence, and I love the fact that every week, the people who come up here to pray on our behalf are not orators, they're, they're not professional prayers, they're people like you saying, I could never do that right now. Uh, and they're people who say, okay, Lord, I'm going to pray to you, and if, and if uh, everybody's listening and it, and it works, great. Um, it's kind of like when Deneen gets up there and is singing, you think, I don't want to sing, I want to listen, and yet she leads us into the presence of God. And so um, what we're talking about today is what does it mean to align our lives with God's purposes that would allow us to experience life uh, more fully, uh, even in the midst of those things that Jeff was praying about, difficult things, tragic things, fun things. Uh, so I, I, I want to help you think about in terms of how it applies to you, how disciplined are you and what does it, why does it matter? Um, in May 1985, I don't know if, if you can remember that far back or if you were not even born then, but in 1985, 18-year-old 18 18 Tanya Ebby, uh, she just graduated from high school in New York City. She sailed her 26-foot sailboat out of New York Harbor. So just imagine, 18-year-old girl, uh, a, a young woman, 
uh, here's your diploma, there's your boat. Uh, her goal was to circumnavigate the world alone. Uh, she returned to New York City in November 1987, two and a half years later. She was the first American woman and youngest person ever to circumnavigate the globe solo. Are you totally impressed by now? You're thinking, this woman is a machine. She had probably been sailing every day since she could walk, and now she is doing this trip. No, that's not it. This wasn't her idea. It was far from being her idea. In fact, she resented the idea and resisted the idea uh, because she was a wild child. Uh, she had this elaborate system where her younger siblings would cover for her while she snuck out and went, to, went and clubbed at night. Uh, she was the prototypical punker in, uh, the, in the early mid-80s in New York City, and uh, uh, it was not looking good for her. Uh, but she thought she'd take a step toward maturity and became a bike messenger because she could ride at full speed to the streets of Manhattan and breaking every rule on the way to delivering a message. And then she, she could party at night. She had absolutely zero, no interest in college whatsoever. But her father encouraged her. That's a very kind way of saying he threatened her. He coerced her. He didn't bully, bully her or harass her, he, but he just put it out to her uh, to do this because she was undisciplined and unprepared for life. And basically, it was the simplest thing, so what else would you rather do? Well, uh, ride my bike like a maniac through Manhattan, delivering messages and partying. And so he, he just kept hammering away at this. Uh, one of the issues, though, was that she'd never sailed a boat before on her own. Small detail, but nonetheless a factor. Uh, and so she acquiesced to it, and he said, I'm going to buy a boat. Uh, it'll be the equivalent of whatever tuition I was going to spend on your college experience. You're, it's going to be my boat. I'm entrusting it to you, and you can give it back to me or pay me for it after your adventure. The first night out, she went out of New York Harbor uh, and, and stopped in Sandy Hook, just a very short sail, on, on late on a Friday night, and it was raining, and she realized she didn't know how to set the anchor. She didn't know how to operate some of the essential stuff in the boat, though her dad had walked her through all this, right? He'd prepared her on the basics, but here he told her um, at that point, she said, Dad, Dad, I, I'm just not ready. He said, you'll figure it out as you go. Now, this is a, this is, it's at this point that people are thinking, I would have called Child Protective Services. I said, there's a maniac father sending his 18-year-old little girl, uh, all, you know, like five, four of her or whatever, you know, and uh, 110 pounds of her out into, you know, the, the jaws of the, the, of the world. The ocean is the least of her problems. It's when she gets somewhere, showing up in port and saying, hi, I'm Tanya. And she did it. It all came together as two and a half years later, she was sailing back into New York, getting dumped on by the biggest waves of the whole trip going, I can't believe I did this. I'm 21 years old. I turned 21 on this last leg across the Atlantic, and I did this. And I don't know if I want to go back. I've come to understand me and my life in such a way that I don't want to return to the world I left. And so in those 30 months and 27,000 miles at sea, she had learned self-discipline. Now, we would call it survival. 
when everything, the boat is getting turned upside down, when everything is un, out of every cabinet, uh, when there's no wind, when there's too much wind, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, when somebody says, oh, you're going on that coast, off Somalia. You know, there's pirates there. Oh, thanks for the information. Can't wait to experience that. Um, wow. Uh, what kinds of adventures, I'm not saying compare yourself to an 18-year-old who sails 27,000 miles around the world, but what kinds of adventures have you experienced that has pulled out of you resourcefulness and resilience and discipline that you didn't know you had? And possibly, as you think about that later today and reflect on it maybe this week, it'll make you want to do more of that, or you'll think, you know what it was, is that the adventure very quickly became, nobody else is going to do this for me. And if it's going to work, I'm going to have to do the work. Uh, I'm going to have to learn some things. And, and it won't work very well the first time, but then I'm going to learn from that. And it becomes this uh, bias for action that's inherently uh, you know, about making a prototype. I'll fix it this way this time, because that's all I know. But then you iterate. Oh, that's not the right way to fix it. That knot came undone, or this sail didn't hold, or... I, if I dumped the air out of the sail sooner, I wouldn't have had this wave fill my entire 26-foot boat with water. If I'd actually paid attention to the stove, I'd realize that there was a piece of it that was open and the water was rushing into the boat. All these kinds of things that she had to deal with. And then she had a cat that peed on her bed every day. It was a really great trip. But thinking about that for you, these are the kinds of things that probably help us all grow up and take responsibility. When somebody says, it's up to you, and we're not being coddled or protected, I'm not saying it's not right for parents to absolutely support their kids and prepare them for life, but at some point you have to say, here's your life. Let me know how it goes. I'll be there whenever you need me. Self-discipline. How does that sound to you? A scary, boring, uh, hard work, no fun, painful? Yes, it is. <laughs> All of that. Uh, here's my, my working um, definition on self-discipline, and if I had more of it, I would have had a better definition, but you can improve on it. I put it on the screen. Self-discipline is developing the ability to control your feelings and overcome your fears, your ignorance, your weakness, and your laziness to pursue what you think is right, despite excuses and temptations to abandon it. Essentially, self-discipline is developing inner strength to achieve important goals. It's training for doing something right in the right way. You probably heard it said before, look, trying is not enough. We need to train. You can't try to run a marathon. You've got to train for it. And the best way to do it is to put your shoes on and start running. Uh, the Bible says it this way out of Hebrews 12, 11, No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it, who have been developed by it. I remember the frustration of trying to tie my shoe. I was 40 years old, and I, no, I, was, um, I was like four years old, and I'm trying to tie this shoe. And back in, that, in those days, that was the only kind of shoe they sold. You had to tie it. And I, I invented Velcro because of that, and I <laughs> became a zillionaire. But I was trying to tie this shoe, and, I, and my mom was busy, and I'm trying, 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 trying. And then when I was kind of distracted, I'm trying, I tied it. Now I didn't know how I did it. Like, oh my gosh, I tied my shoe! And then, oh, 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 oh gosh, I don't have a phone to take a picture of it or anything. I just, so, uh, so I undid it 
to see if I could figure out how to do it again. Uh, that's all I have to say today. I just wanted to end with that story. Um, <laughs> no, it was hard. It was really hard and frustrating. And then when I did it, oh my gosh, I felt so alive. I, it was, I, I felt, uh, I was like the most powerful, intimidating four-year-old on the planet at that point because I'm like, hey, I can tie a shoe. How about you? Hey, let's see you can tie your shoe faster. Hey, oh, buddy, I see you're wearing loafers. You got a problem with that? You got a problem with tying shoes? You know, um, no, it was just fantastic. No discipline seems pleasant at the time. It's painful. It's inconvenient. It's frustrating. It can be scary, annoying. It can make you feel bad about you because you can't seem to do it. And then what we do, we make up stuff. If I ask our, our now five-year-old grandson, hey, what time is it? He just always says it's five. <laughs> and he wears a watch. Hey, what time is it? Five. Oh, good. Thank you. <laughs> he's just going with it. And at some point, he'll actually know how to tell time, you know. Uh, but right now, he's, he's going, you know, I'm just claiming it as my own, you know. Uh, later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness, all kinds of benefits, abilities, strengths, insights, wisdom, and peace. Your world starts to come together, and that's what peace is. The shalom of God is when the, your world comes together, internally and externally. It's a sense of shalom. And it can be in the midst of storms, but when you get it right, and you're in the middle of a storm, and the waves are big, and it's scary, but you get some element that's really essential right, you have peace. It's ironic. The thing that would have scared the bejabbers out of you at one point is now like whatever, it's background noise, because this is working. So first point of the morning is this. Self-discipline is a core feature in our relationship with Christ. And the fancy word for that that Jesus used is being a disciple. Discipleship is a weird word that we don't use in our culture. Uh, sometimes you hear somebody described as a disciple of so-and-so. And what are they saying? They're a, they're a protege, they're a student of, they're learning from. But this idea of discipleship comes out of Jesus saying to his disciples, look, go into the world and make disciples, in fact, in every nation teaching them to obey everything I have taught you. For I, I possess all authority in heaven and on earth. And guess what? I'll be with you forever. Well, pretty good assurance. Many times during that two and a half year period that Tanya would pick up the phone and go, Dad, my engine blew up. Well, here's what you might want to think about doing, you know. So self-discipline is a core feature in discipleship. Well, what do we do? We commit. We get on the boat. Uh, we learn, we figure things out, we obey whatever rules, regulations, and directions that will help us. Uh, we do stuff, we rest, and the result of that is that we grow. That's, that's a pretty simple recipe, right? You commit, you learn, you obey, you do, you rest, and you grow. And the funny thing is, in the middle of it, you hate it, but at the end of it, you go, I can't wait, back, wait, I can't wait to do that backpack trip next year. I can't wait to do that surf trip next year. Once you get over the memory of the stepping on the stingray or getting hit you know by coral and so we ask jesus to guide us in living in his grace and walking in his love now we ask because we're recognizing uh, the source of everything we need is the lord and the lord says great i will guide you in living in my grace and walking in my love what will you now do you don't just always have a sense of grace and love you have to start walking in it. And as you walk in it, you say, ah, so this is what grace is. Ah, this is what love is about. 
And we learn to value godly character as much as we value great achievement. The saddest thing I've seen in, in all the years I've lived, um, and <clears throat> most of my life has been in Newport Beach or La Jolla. And so I've seen a lot of people who have, who have accomplished a lot, are high achievers, but their character, not so much. At the end of the day, your achievements are, are significant and important, especially if they've helped other people. But meanwhile, you're an empty shell. You're a poser. You're mailing it in. There's no there there. That's why super successful people can easily get distracted by self-medication in every manner you can imagine or self-annihilation. Because if there's not a godly character, there's a sense of emptiness that will not go away. And what discipline becomes at that point is um, a form of punishment. You didn't do enough. You're not good enough. You don't have what it takes. And there used to be drive, we drive, we drive, we drive. We're trying to perform for everybody else. There's a critical audience in our head that we can't please. There are people with high expectations that we are you know, laboring under. And at some point, it all just collapses. My collapse in that, you say, I'm withdrawing and just going to live a quiet life. And, or I'm going to go out in flaming ignominy. But we value godly character as much as we value great achievement. We don't say they're opposites. We say, hey, if you have a great achievement, What's behind it? What's underneath it? And if you're living a godly life, what, are you, what fruit is being produced in you? It might be very modest. Uh, so, you know, if, if you have a kid who's a C student and you're beating them and flogging them about being an A student, you're missing the point. How about affirming them that they're doing their very best and they're getting Cs? You're celebrating what their capacity really is. At the same time, when the kid is getting A's, and they're mailing it in, you say, this is not you. This is not acceptable. Is that mean? No, you're saying, okay, they're A's. I have a friend who, um, he's a very modest guy, he's a very accomplished guy, but he's, he's a super humble guy. And he said, I, I felt pretty good in my high school because I was like the best math student until somebody informed me, we have a really crappy math program in this high school. <laughs> and he goes, really? Well, I got accepted to Caltech you showed up at Caltech, they go, you don't know a lot about math, do you? You need to go to this community college. <laughs> you need to go to Pasadena Community College and take some math. And then he's like, what? See, so the idea that we're, we're doing great things isn't as significant as who we are in the midst of that. Are we growing? Are we being pushed beyond our comfort level? And not to say that there's a value in being pushed beyond, beyond our comfort level, but anytime we start to say, I feel anxious and antsy and I want to grow, I want to do something, that means you're willing to step out of the comfort level. And then the hardest part is actually doing that. We're going to talk about that. So God's word is our guide. God's spirit is our strength. God's people are our partners. So we're well-resourced in this. We're not alone in the cosmos. And so ultimately, self-discipline is the freedom and joy in doing what you value most with your life. Every kid wants to be free. And the, and the ticket for freedom is taking responsibility for your life. Or somebody else will. Somebody else will. I have a friend, he's um, <laughs> a character. Uh, as he's walking out of high school his last day, his favorite teacher said, you know, Bill, you'll never be as smart as you are right now. And he took it as a compliment. <laughs> he's like, yeah, darn right. And he realized his life wasn't working very well, and he ended up in the military, and, and he, dis he discovered that there were people there assigned and actually compensated for taking charge of his life. And through them, he learned how to take responsibility for his own life, and he ended up going, oh my gosh, I'm discovering that I have capacities I didn't know, and he went on to college and had this great you know, life. 
So self-discipline is ultimately about freedom and joy. The reason our kids, we wanted to give them as much freedom as they could handle. And we were preparing. We'd say that. You know, if we had a little conflict, we'd say, look, we're just preparing you to be free so that the world doesn't tell you what to do. Your internal uh, compass in God is telling you what to do. And I, I, I wish I had time to tell you fun stories about how that worked out, you know. And um, none of us are perfect, but what we can do is have a way of understanding who we are that allows us to keep moving toward freedom and joy. In, this, in, in, the, in, the, in the face of conflict and pain and disappointments, uh, we get to do what we value most with our lives. Now, so everybody struggles with self-discipline. Every human being struggles with self-discipline. I can tell you why. Because every human being at some point wants to quit whatever they're doing. And it's usually at those moments of, of being at the end of your rope that you realize that you're in God's grip. Lord, where are you? Uh, well, actually, I'm holding you. Oh, thank you so much. And we start to become open then. And, and ironically, in, the, in those places of those, those lowest moments, we feel like I'm, I'm a failure, I'm going to quit. All of a sudden, we become open to receiving guidance and resources that we had somehow not been paying attention to. And so here's, here's another you know, helpful way for me to think about what it looks like for me to, work, to, to, to try to be self-disciplined. I organize my life to achieve my fullest capacity in response to God's word. In his power and with support from others, I embrace godly values, making decisions that lead to virtuous commitments. I want to grow and develop into the best version of me through God's grace, through God's love, through God's truth and power working in me. Just a working definition. I don't look at this every day, but it's the kind of thing that it becomes part of your interior architecture. You go, you know, this is what I'm about. So you give up perfection the first day, and you commit to process. Progress now, perfection later. You will be perfect in Christ someday. You will not be perfect any time before that. Now, some people have claimed theologically over the ages that you can be perfect, and it was a perfect mess. They imposed on people these expectations that crushed them, and then they became really good at faking perfection. And they got really good at distracting from their own imperfection and telling everybody else how imperfect they were. So why is it so hard to do? If we have all this great stuff from God, why is it still hard to be self-disciplined? Uh, even for Jesus' disciples, they weren't all that swift at it. Well, Genesis 3 describes why. It says that we have a broken relationship, not only with ourselves, but primarily with God. And that's affected our whole relationship with the created world. Uh, we are disordered people inhabiting a disordered world that constantly complicates our plans. Now, if you're sitting here today saying, oh, I knew it. You're mugging me with the Bible. You're imposing Genesis 3 on me. Well, let me just back up then and just, just quote the second law of thermodynamics. That might be helpful to you. Uh, this, the, the second law of thermodynamics says stuff that I have no idea. I don't know what it's about, but it just, I just thought I'd quote it because it sounds so impressive to say that. Um, it could be two thermodynamic laws for all I know. No, there's a bunch of them. And this one says um, that we are affected by a thing called entropy. Uh, and entropy is simply a, a theory of disorder and decline. Now, it's related to heat and energy, etc. But entropy ends up being one of these concepts that applies across the board. Social entropy. Every business is defined by some level of entropy. Every marriage 
suffers from entropy. Every kid's bedroom is a monument to entropy. <laughs> we just cleaned that room. How did it become this? Mom, Dad, I just got to tell you, it's the second law of thermodynamics. Just bear with me as I explain it to you. Uh, I live in a disordered uh, world that's in decline. Can you just accept that and then shut the door? Uh, planned obsolescence is a redundancy. You know when the companies go, hey, I know, let's make it break down quicker. It's going to break down. So it's like double entropy. You're, you're saying, let's, 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 let's accelerate entropy, planned obsolescence. Everything is running down, getting old, wearing out, breaking on this planet, even in outer space. Do you know this? This is a fact, a true um, piece of history. Astronauts take duct tape with them into space. Did you know this? Three bucks worth of duct tape saved the Apollo 13 crew. Uh, in 1971, the Apollo 17 lunar rover, at that point, was a $38 billion dune buggy. They fixed it with duct tape. It's now, it would now cost you know, close to $300 billion to make it. Uh, but you still need the duct tape. Why? Because things break down. You know, you've seen that picture of the astronaut golfing. That guy's whole worry was, I hope I hit the ball. Because you imagine for all time, I whiff on the moon. <laughs> but entropy could make that happen, because just as he's doing it, he's going, hey, what? Oh, no, I lifted my head. You know, Everything is running down. Uh, how did you experience entropy this week? What's falling apart in your world? What's not coming together in your world? What's disappointing you and frustrating you in your world? What needs repair? So self-discipline really is the necessary work we do to overcome entropy. One of the facts, the correlates of entropy, of the second law of thermodynamics, as, a, as it's applied to all kinds of human disciplines, is that somebody has to take responsibility for bringing energy to the system. When the system gets stuck, somebody needs to come in and say, all right, let's do this. First of all, let's admit there's a problem. Let's stop blaming each other. Let's look at what the problem might be, and then let's look for a solution. Every day in America, in an organization, some junior person on the staff comes into some senior person and starts laying out a description of entropy. And the, and the wise executive woman says, listen, I really appreciate your frustration. Why don't you come back when you have a solution to entropy and we'll work together. Don't bring your entropy problems to me. Your job is to figure out what's wrong with it and come back. So self-discipline is the necessary energy we apply to converting, uh, to overcoming entropy in us and around us, because it really starts in us, our attitudes, our lack of vision, our lack of imagination. When we get tired and we get frustrated, we close down our imagination. Our vision becomes uh, really constricted. Uh, this is ultimately why often people commit suicide. Their vision of what could be goes like this, and they can't see any other option. The world would be better off without me. Uh, Stephen Pressfield, uh, do you know that name at all, Stephen Pressfield? Uh, he's, he's a well-known author. He worked for 17 years and was never published before he was finally published, and he wrote a, a book and a screenplay called The Legend of Bagger Vance. Made a zillion dollars on it. Then he wrote a book called um, a Gates of Fire about the Battle of Thermopylae. It's, it has been required reading for the last 30-plus years in every... A U.S. military academy. 
Nobody can go through uh, senior levels of leadership in any of the services without reading this book. Uh, he's written so many screenplays and so many other great books. He's, and he's a character of a person. He's in his 80s now. He's a phenomenal person. But he wrote this wonderful book that somebody gave me or told me about years ago. It's a very thin book. Brilliant. It's called The War of Art. It's a flip of Sun Tzu's book, you know, The Art of War. The War of Art. Uh, and it's written for creative people, but really it applies to all people because entropy crosses all disciplines, right? Uh, he didn't talk about entropy, entropy, but what he does talk about is what he calls the resistance. Uh, and he's, he's saying essentially talent, dreams, good intentions aren't enough. You've got to do the work. Now he knows this from graduating from an elite Ivy League school, joining the Marines, getting out, and then picking fruit, cleaning bathrooms for 17 years while he tried to make it as a writer. He's gone through the humbling process of having to um, overcome just the fact that you have talent and dreams, good intentions, etc. You've got to do the work. Why? Because self-doubt, sabotage, fear, fatigue, laziness, discouragement, and procrastination is always lurking. Oh, look, there's a butterfly, you know? And so Pressfield calls this the resistance. Uh, and he would say, uh, he, 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 he would describe himself as a secular Jew, but, he, but I have this sneaking suspicion he has a, a, a faith in Christ because of other things I've heard him say and read. And he says, I believe in God because I believe there's a devil who's behind resistance. And we would expand on that. We'd say resistance is the sin that affects us, the fall we, described, we see described in Genesis 3. And then it's Satan's effort to distract us. You can't blame Satan for anything. All Satan can do is influence you to do what you think you want to do anyway. You can say no to Satan. Resist the devil and he will flee you, is what the scriptures tell us. So don't think that Satan has any responsibility for you. More than anybody else who, wants, who has an opinion and tries to convince you into doing something you don't want to do has power over you. If you want to obey that and listen to it, he has power, she has power, whoever is trying to influence you. But in this case... Uh, this resistance is the stuff that's in us that says either I don't have what it takes or it's too hard, it might not work. Who am I to think I can do this? Some of you grew up in families where if you tried to aspire, it was like, who do you think you are aspiring to that? You're just you. This is the kind of family we are. Or this is the kind of people we are. Uh, there was a fellow named Garrison Keeler who made hay out of this and all kinds of books and uh, brilliant uh, uh, NPR radio show called... Um, Lake Wobegon, where it was, something like that. Um, Prairie, Prairie Home Companion. And he would say, yeah, you know, I grew up in the Midwest, and, and it was like the, the flower that gets too high gets chopped off. And it comes out in phrases like, so who do you think you are to move to Florida and leave the Wisconsin winter? You know, what makes you so special you get to go to Phoenix? And so all these things are part of resistance, holding us back. You can't do it. You're not good enough. You don't have what it takes. Can you imagine if somebody was saying that to Tanya? Ebby, as the kind of loser in progress, loser in training, that she looks back and says, I was really on a bad course. Now, if somebody said, hey, you're doing exactly what you're meant to do because that's all you're for. Instead, her annoying father said, you know what? I think there's more in life for you. You're going to get on a boat and sail it for two and a half years, and I'll see you in 27,000 miles. Overcoming the resistance requires becoming self-aware, self-disciplined, and spiritually alive. See, there's antidotes to it. It just doesn't go away because you want it to go away. Uh, denial only works so far. One of the first responses in grief or loss is denial. This can't be happening. This won't happen. 
And after denial fades away, like in 10 seconds, you have to actually do something. Feel what you're going to feel and come up with a plan. I love the way the Proverbs writer says it in Proverbs 6. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler, yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. How long will you lie there, you sluggard? When will you get up from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a bandit and scarcity like an armed man. This is the original motivational thinking in the Bible. Uh, that, uh, very empowering and inspiring and just makes me want to get up and, you know, put on my armor and walk out the door. Ah, but no, what it is is it's, it's somebody loving you enough to say, hello, do you see what you're, you're doing? Do you see what I'm seeing? Better are the wounds of a friend than the kisses of an enemy is what Proverbs 17 tells us. Uh, uh, you know, uh, Paul said it this way, writing to some people in Greece in Thessalonica. He says, for even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. Our Congress just spent months debating this. Should we give money to well, you know, able-bodied people who won't work? And I'm thinking, why would that even be an issue? Why, why is that even an argument? We help people who can't help themselves? Yes, generously. But you're telling me that you could work, but it's inconvenient? I have the world's smallest violin right here that I'm playing. <laughs> so the second point, if the first one is that self-discipline is a core feature in a relationship with Christ and how he wants to grow us in the face of prosperity or adversity. The second point is this. Life is meant to be a creative rhythm of work and rest. It's not all work. Some people work too much. Some people rest too much. It's a rhythm of work and rest. Why? Because we see this in Genesis 1 and 2. God is creating for six days. And all these things he's creating, he says, it's good, it's good. At the very last, he creates us. He says, it's good, good. It's very, very good. And it says, on the seventh day, he rested. And this is the rhythm that God has built into us. It's the rhythm he gave and commanded Israel to structure their life together around. A righteous work and righteous rest that would bless them and others. And so everybody is different, but everybody needs, everybody's different. Different rhythms of work and rest, different ages and stages, your work your vision of work and rest, your experience of it changes. There's no such thing as retirement in the Bible. What there is, though, is a shifting of the rhythm of work and rest. Different kind of work, a different kind of rest. Pacing, right? Everybody is different, but everybody needs a Sabbath rhythm to flourish and thrive in God's shalom. What have, what have you know, premier athletes discovered? Rest is essential. I'll break my body if I don't rest. And so self-discipline avoids laziness, non-productive rest, and it resists busyness. Why? Because if we're over-functioning, that's not helpful. And if we're under-functioning, that's not helpful. And that's why the first question I asked you this morning was, hey, are you a disciplined person? How disciplined are you? Scale of 1 to 10. And then think of all the areas of your life. Because often what I do is I will over-function in one area that I'm better at or it's more fun for me to do, and it's really productive and very impressive. But meanwhile, I'm purposely or unconsciously underfunctioning here. Uh, and this is why, for example, in a, in a relationship like marriage, uh, the big, ta-da, this is the, you know, the big gift, uh, leaves you cold if it hasn't been supported by a thousand and one gestures of love. 
I know, I know, I've been a real jerk. Here's a ring. No, okay, so you're patronizing me too. You're trivializing what we've been going through. Ah, look, here's a this or here's a that, this new car, this is, no. Love is built on a thousand and one small gestures so that when you present the big gift, it's like, oh my gosh. This just kind of wraps up the whole context of our life. You knew what I wanted or needed or wanted to bless me this way. So this is the beauty of finding the proper way to function. How much, how much work do I really need to do uh, in my marriage? Am I doing that? If I'm just overdoing it, I'm going to be annoying to my spouse. How much work as a parent do I need to be doing? If I overdo it, I'm going to be annoying to my kids. In fact, I'm going to incapacitate my kids because I'm going to be hovering over them, protecting them from actually learning how to grow. So we want to create you know, self-reliant children in a self-indulgent world. Self-reliant children in a self-indulgent world. We let them have some pain and suffering as they work things through. We don't want to crush their spirit, but we don't want to either crush their incentive to move beyond their own self-indulgent, oh, do it for me, please. I can't do it. Okay, well, I'm going to keep walking, but if you want to fall, call, call an Uber, you know, if you need. And it can, okay. And so what we do is we find ways to do this that creates a creative rhythm of work and rest. We are a culture and a society that just glories in our work and busyness. I am so busy. How about you? No, I'm busier than that. You call that busy? I'll tell you what busy looks like. And it's a race to the bottom, right? Every study that I've seen in the, literally in the last 40 years, starting when, you know, in, New, in Newport Beach, the epicenter of entrepreneurs, it seems, there were so many studies that were coming out uh, that said, if you don't take a break, you will not be productive in your career, especially as an entrepreneur. Every, if for every week of vacation you take, you're going to take your, your competency and your productivity to this level. I just saw another one in the Wall Street Journal about two weeks ago, another study three weeks ago, saying if you don't take a rest, if you don't get a change of pace, you, you, it's not just going to stay flat, it's going to go down. This rhythm of work and rest is brilliant. It comes right from the Word of God. And I don't know if, you know, we live in a world now where it used to be Sabbath was Sunday. I don't know what Sabbath looks like anymore in anybody's, anybody's schedule, but you need one. You need to figure out what is the time I'm protecting as a time to rest to be in the presence of God. Sabbath is not about a holy place. It's about a holy time. When you're unencumbered by everything else, and you're, you're, you're you know, maybe reading God's Word, you're singing some of the songs that Nina inspired you to sing, and you, you're, you're talking to God and relaxing. You're doing what you want to do. Uh, this, is okay when it's, this is when it's okay to eat that pint of ice cream. You know, I don't know. I mean, the idea is you need a break. I talked last week about self-awareness. Self-awareness just means paying attention. What am I actually feeling? What am I actually experiencing? How are people feeling about me and experiencing me? And the more self-aware we become, the better we are at the decisions and commitments we make. Self-aware. So we're, we're cleaning out um, some stuff and have a piano we need to sell and uh, put it on Craigslist. And the person wanted the piano. They live in L.A. The piano's in Newport Beach. And uh, they said, love to buy the piano. I'll send you a check. They sent us a check. The piano's going to go for 2500 bucks. Beautiful piano. 
They sent us a check for like $4,800 or something like that, and 45, 28 cents or some crazy number. And we're like, what? All of a sudden I thought, oh my gosh, this is a scam. Because the person said, I didn't even send it to anything. So Janet texted me back, hey, you sent us a check for 4800 bucks. it's 2500 Yeah, well, the movers will only take cash. And this is all via text. Oh, really? That's interesting. And I'm just thinking, my crap detector's going, whoop, 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 whoop. <laughs> and so this is what self-awareness is. It allows you to say, if it's too good to be true, it maybe it is. And if it's just funky, it probably is. Turns out this is an entire, if you, you're probably already aware of this. I'm not the last to know. There's an entire scam about cashier's checks that perpetuate in places like Craigslist. And the whole scam is that, you know, it's a fake check. Uh, and this person kept saying, have you cashed a check yet? You should cash a check. Well, at least cash, your, cash it so you get your money. We're like, eh, no, send it back. Self-awareness allows us to be wise and discerning. It's not being paranoid, overprotective. I trust no one. It's saying, hey, let me walk through life paying attention. It's powerful. It's what we call wisdom, maturity, living consciously, living intentionally, living responsibly. So self-discipline is simply being aware and, and as I said, being connected to Christ takes it to another level so that I can order my values, my beliefs and behaviors to achieve desired outcomes. Self-discipline is simply saying I'm aligning my life with my values. I'm disciplining myself to say yes to some things and no to some things. And, and so... Uh, these outcomes include walking with God. They include uh, they, that the Spirit of God develops in us certain fruits, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. These just come out of us as we walk with God and learn His ways through tough times and, and, and great times. It's about blessing people, and it's about living well. When the Bible talks about prosperity, it's not the prosperity gospel that some people say, well, just do this and God's going to bless you. He has to. But rather, prosperity is this quality of life that we experience in Christ, whether we have two nickels to rub together or we have so much money we have to spend most of our time giving it away. Prosperity is a quality of life, not a quantity of wealth. And so Paul described it as this, self-discipline. I'm doing the best with the strength God generously gives me. I'm doing my best with the strength God generously gives me. You're not alone in this self-discipline process. I love the way he wrote to the Philippians. He said it this way, too. Brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me, seen in me, put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. So our, those are values. And as we apply values, they become virtues. Why do we have so much virtue signaling? Because we have such cruddy values that aren't virtuous. So people have to kind of, you know, cut and paste an image management program so that people think they're virtuous. And it's really a, a, it's a commitment to groupthink. If everybody thinks this is great, I'm, I'm all with it. Nazi Germany experienced this in a horrible way. The churches in Germany said, let's go with the program because, you know, the government said we should do this. There was a whole bunch, of, I, said, I mentioned this about a month ago, there's a whole bunch of people behind the scenes going, that's not right. Those, aren't, are not, those are not our gospel values. 
And if we have to die to, to step up against those, we're going to. And they did. Virtues are simply the, the outworking of values. And if you have some values and you feel not very virtuous, just hang with those values long enough and the virtue will emerge. And so Paul is describing inspiring, powerful, motivating values and virtues because something important is at stake that we can and should care about and have responsibility for. You know, um, think about what is responsibility? It's a capacity to love and to work. You can respond appropriately. That's all responsibility is. The person who's going through life is a martyr. Oh, I do so much. You don't appreciate what I do for you. They're out of whack because responsibility is saying, what's the appropriate response? And am I doing it out of love? Jesus said it this way, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commitments. Now, what is he talking about, law and prophets? That's Jesus' Bible was the Old Testament. Guess what? The Old Testament is our Bible. If you're not reading the Old Testament, you're, you're, you're separating yourself from a lot of content that is necessary to understand the rest of the gospel and what it means to be a person in Christ. So here's where it ends up. This is my third point. The first one was that self-discipline is a core feature of discipleship. The second, life is meant to be a creative rhythm of work and rest allowing us to say yes and no to the right things, make the right commitments. The third and final point is this. Self-discipline is most satisfying and sustainable as an act of love. Tanya hated the boat until she learned to love the boat. She loved that boat. She would do anything for that boat. It stopped being her enemy and her adversary and the bane of her life, and, and pretty much she said, I love this boat. She loved her dad. She loved her life. The key is knowing what you love and why you love it. And so resistance is conquered by a greater purpose, that's all. How do you, how do you push back and push through resistance? You have to have a greater purpose. Otherwise, resistance wins every time. If you don't have a greater purpose, you have nothing to... To, to no reason to push through the resistance. Why? Because resistance is super attractive. I'll pick resistance any time, any place, because, wow, it's awesome. Just go with the flow. Unless they have a larger purpose, then I have to say, no, this is really good, but this is better. This is convenient, but this is what's going to get me where I really want to go for these important and good reasons. Not my glory, but God's. Not my blessing alone, but the blessing of other people. And so Jesus' self-disciplined love for this world overcame sin and death. Think about that. Where did he get the self-discipline? Well, he was God. Yeah, but he was fully human as well. It was his self-discipline to say yes to God and no to what would have been the resistance. And we know this when he was sweating drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, Father, if there's any way for this cup to pass, may it be so. The resistance was so intense. He's sweating drops of blood. But then he says this, but not my will, but yours be done. Larger purpose. For the joy set before him, it says, he endured the cross and the shame. Joy, there's no joy in the cross and the shame. No, the joy was the purpose on the other side of the cross and the shame. The joy was the resurrection where he could say, I'm sending my Holy Spirit. We're on the move in this world and I'll be with you forever. 
So self-discipline is for us a lifelong growth process requiring updating in each season of life. What season of life are you in? A good way to check it is what is your birthday? And what age are you right now? That probably generally defines the season of life you're in. What season are you in? Nobody gets a hall pass from self-discipline in any season. Babies need a certain level of self-discipline. Every young parent, and we're watching this with our youngest daughter and her husband, has to figure out, when do I need to respond to the baby in the middle of the night, and when don't I? We're going to teach this kid how to get on a sleep cycle. And every pediatrician says, that's essential. And the parent says, oh, no, I'm so loving and kind, I'm not going to let my baby cry at all. That's going to be a disaster for the, 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 the parent and the baby. So every age and stage requires self-discipline. Where are you in your age and stage, and what kind of discipline is being required of you? I'd say it this way. What does love require of you right where you're living now? In the life you're actually living, what does love invite you to do, require you to do, call you to do? And you can deny it, you can go to the resistance, but you'll look back and you'll still see the love going, it's here, this is where you're supposed to be, loving this, these, for these reasons. What do you need to say yes to and no to? How will you honor your core commitments? Remember, your core commitments aren't trying to please people. Your core commitments are love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself, for these are the fulfillment of the commandments. It's not doing what everybody wants you to do. It's doing the right thing in the right way that you know you're supposed to do. Not every need around you is a call on you. It's a need. You can't meet every need. But what needs are you uniquely positioned to meet? And it's okay. I remember sitting one time... (laughs) In a, at a lunch in a swanky place in Newport Beach with a bunch of people, and one of the guys was, was the guy who had inherited a massive fortune, a massive fortune. And um, he was a little bit on the spectrum, so he's a little bit socially awkward, but he's a sharp guy. And wherever he'd go, people would hit him up for not just hundreds or thousands, but millions of dollars. So I'm at this lunch, and somebody from another side of this uh, dining room Walks up to him and goes, hey, Howard. He starts making this pitch. Now, I'm sitting next to a guy who's a super sharp guy. He knows this guy really well. And he says, watch this. I'm like, and Howard says, wow, that's fantastic. But that's not my calling. That's just not my calling. I'm already committed. The guy's like, oh, what do you say to that? Howard was being faithful to what he's already committed. He's committed. He's giving. He's in. He's, he's on it. I, but I would be forsaking a commitment I've already made to be distracted with this. It's good. It's great. It's not my commitment. Where are you in your life right now where there's so many things pulling on you saying, we need you. You've got to do it. You're the only one. If it's true, love will confirm it and you'll say, you know what? That's right. I'd rather do 50 other things, but this is the one I need to do out of love. But as your self-awareness kicks, you might go, but you know what? I'm experiencing false guilt. The most honest, authentic thing I could say right now is, I think it's time for you to take responsibility for that. This is why it's wise and discerning. It's not easy. You have to actually think about this stuff. They're not rules you follow. It's the guidance of God conforming you to his purposes for you. So fuel your, dis- your self-discipline of God's love, on God's love. Fuel your disciplined life on God's love 
in your power through the inevitable resistance. And with every act of overcoming the resistance, you will proclaim God's redemptive work in this world. Howard is a free man. He's giving it all away, but he's a free man in the way he's doing it. And as we practice self-discipline, we restore order in this chaotic world within us and around us. You, Christ in you, is what the Bible calls the hope of glory. What does that mean? God is glorified as we get aligned with him in a self-disciplined life that sets us free to experience joy and love, making deep commitments that are sacrificial and often, often cause us to suffer. But it's worth it because it's what God is uniquely calling us to do and be. So Lord Jesus, I pray that for me, for my brothers and sisters here. The talent in this room is staggering. The experience is impressive. The capacities, Lord, um, seem infinite. So Lord, I pray that you would teach us to be aligned with you in a way that we could establish a rhythm of work and rest, that our values would be clear, that our commitments would be true, that we would be people who are, in the best sense, self-aware and selfless, not thinking less of ourselves, just thinking of ourselves less, thinking of you and, and, and the people you brought in our life more. In a way, Lord, that we would experience the shalom that you created us for. We pray all of this in Jesus' high and holy name. Amen. Well, let's wrap up our worship time um, by singing. And this is an offering time. That is, you're not giving money, you're giving you. Money is easier, you is harder. Give you to him uh, in this time of offering. If you want to give uh, financially, there's an offering box so you can mail it into us. Most important thing I can say to you is if God is, is nudging you, is putting the idea in you that I need to do something different. I need to take a first step. The first step I'd suggest is after the benediction, go right out there to the prayer garden and this lovely garden behind this wall outside and let people pray for you. Say, I, need, I'm, I'm, I got some decisions I need to make. That's enough all you have to say. Would you pray for me? I'm concerned about some people, some situations. I need wisdom. Please pray for me. And people will be praying for you. You'll, it'll be awesome. Then come get something to eat, hang out, and meet some people who you don't know. They might become your next best friend. Let's continue worshiping the Lord together. You call me out upon the waters, the great unknown, where feet may fade. And there I find you in the mystery, in ocean steep, my faith will stand. And I will call upon your name And keep my eyes above the waves When oceans rise, my soul will rest in your embrace For I am yours And you are mine
your grace abounds in deepest waters your sovereign hand will be my guide where feet may fail and fear surround you you've never, never failed and you won't start now so I will call upon your name and keep my eyes above the waves when oceans rise my soul will rest in your embrace for I am yours and you are
and keep my eyes above the waves. My soul will rest in your, in your embrace, for I am yours, and you are May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord who loves you more than you can ask or even imagine. Give you everything you need to walk in newness and fullness of life with him. Both now and forevermore. Amen. My faith will